A listener's note before we begin. The following episode contains adult themes and content of a violent nature. It may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. Overnight on April 18th and 19th, Nova Scotia RCMP said they believed they had contained Gabriel Wartman inside a secure perimeter in Portapic. Police sources say they thought he was probably hiding somewhere or dead inside one of the burning buildings. But at 1.07 a.m., about four hours after the rampage began, they sent out a BOLO, a be-on-the-lookout notice, to all police forces in the province, a warning of what they called an active shooter incident in progress. That first official notice said, and I'm paraphrasing here, that the subject of concern is Gabriel Wartman, that he's very familiar with guns and should be considered armed and dangerous. It says he can be arrested for the incident, but it gives no details at all about the number of victims, and it doesn't mention that Wartman has also started four buildings on fire. The BOLO listed vehicles he was associated with, a white Mercedes C300 and a white former police car. It also said the car may have been burned at the scene. It did not say that police were told Wartman was driving a car that looked just like an RCMP cruiser. And as we now know, Wartman drove that replica RCMP vehicle to DeBert, about 25 kilometers away from the heavily locked down scene in Portapic. But we don't know what the gunman was doing all night. That's one of the big gaps in information. The fact that he was in DeBert was first mentioned by RCMP Superintendent Darren Campbell at a police press briefing 10 days after the shootings. We've actually been able to de- uh, determine through uh, uh, video evidence that the gunman had actually traveled a distance of approximately 26 kilometers uh, where he actually uh, entered into an area in DeBert, which is an industrial area. He arrived at that location at 11.12 in the evening. This was an area the gunman knew well. In fact, he had been there earlier on April 18th with his partner, Beth. According to court documents, the couple went for a drive to celebrate their anniversary. They stopped at a place called the Diefen Bunker. This is a Cold War-era relic built in the 60s and named for John Diefenbaker, the prime minister who ordered construction of six of these bunkers to serve as military headquarters in case of a nuclear attack. Had the Soviet Union attacked Halifax, 350 people could have survived in DeBert for three months. The bunker was decommissioned in the late 90s. Today, visitors can go for a tour or an escape room experience. Beth later told police that Wartman had been to the Diefen bunker before. I wonder if he knew he'd be back in this area late that Saturday night after he killed 13 of his neighbors. I don't know why he chose this place in an industrial part of town. Maybe he hoped to find someone there or break into a building or just lay low for a while. Maybe he slept all night. We do know that he left some things behind. I found uh, an empty shell casings, an empty box of shells and a pair of uh, high parade boots, mounty boots and a holster, gun holster. 
Brian McDonald owns a welding business on Ventura Drive. And on May 30th, he told Global News reporter Ashley Field that he found these items when he took a look around his property about a week after the shootings. We're staying close to home anyway. We don't, we're not doing that much work, so we'd stay home. And just once in a while, I'd come up and I'd come up and check and then go for a walk here. And, and I was always watch, look in the ditches, see if he'd thrown something out. Because I had a feeling that he was here somewhere, you know. And why did you have that feeling? I just had a feeling that he was been in here because I'd like, we know him and he, we do work for him here in the shop and he knows the area quite well. Brian's discovery helped the RCMP piece together some of what happened in the early hours of April 19th. It also highlighted the gunman's obsession with police. According to some experts, that obsession was a warning sign that police ought to have known about, one of many. This guy was dangerous. And uh, so what information did they have about him? His past, his history, his gun collection, I mean, his police cars, come on. If a neighbor next door started driving or bringing police cars onto their property, I'd say, what the hell's going on? This is not normal. I'm your host, Sarah Ritchie, and this is 13 Hours Inside the Nova Scotia Massacre. Episode 4, Red Flags. In our first three episodes, we shared what we found in our investigation into what happened in Portapic during those first three chaotic and terrifying hours. We'll come back to Portapic in future episodes. But you should know that there was a, about a six-hour pause in the terrible acts the gunman committed that weekend. So over the next couple of episodes, we're going to take some time and focus on the man who carried out this massacre, Gabriel Wartman. And we're going to ask whether there were warning signs leading up to what happened. I remember being in the newsroom on the afternoon of Sunday, April 19th. Before we knew the full scope of what had happened, my colleagues and I wondered, who was this man? And why was he pretending to be a police officer? There are so many unanswered questions about what happened that weekend. For me, this was one of the first, and it remains one of the biggest. How was Gabriel Wartman able to disguise himself as an RCMP officer? Why did his car look, as the RCMP put it in the days after the shootings, identical in every way to one of their own vehicles. Was he planning for something like this all along? And who knew about it? Our first insight into Wartman came from an anonymous call I took that day in the newsroom. It was from a man who said he was a family friend, who wanted me to know that at least one of the shooter's uncles was a member of the RCMP. We know from court records that he had two uncles in the force. I don't know who this caller was, but he hinted that Wartman wanted to be a police officer. A high school yearbook held a second clue about this fascination with law enforcement. Wartman went to Riverview High in New Brunswick, just over an hour and a half away from Portapique. And in one yearbook, you'll find a photo of a young man with long, swept-back hair. It looks like a candid shot. He's got a bit of a surprised expression on his face. The caption says Gabriel can be seen cruising around on his Honda XR500R or in the cafeteria with Kathy and Kim. Gabriel's likes are good skiing and time spent with friends. His dislikes include cold weather and English. Gabe's future, 
may include being an RCMP officer. It ends with a cheery best of luck from all the grads of 86. The RCMP have said Wortman never had any special relationship with the force. He wasn't a member or a volunteer or an auxiliary officer. And as far as we can tell, he didn't pursue a career in policing after high school. He went to university, became a licensed embalmer, and worked at a funeral home before he changed careers and became a denturist. But in the last couple of years especially, he spent a considerable amount of time and money ensuring he could look like a police officer if he wanted to. He had authentic uniforms from the RCMP and other police forces, and we know he was wearing some of them when he left Portapique on April 18th. Superintendent Campbell talked about that at a press conference on April 28th. The gunman was a collector of many things, including police memorabilia, and he was in possession of multiple pieces of police uniforms from a variety of agencies. Many witnesses interviewed have spoken of the gunman's interest in the RCMP, which dates back some time. We now know that on April 18th and 19th, the gunman wore parts of an authentic RCMP uniform, including a shirt and pants with a yellow stripe. We also know that he had changed clothing while he traveled between the communities. We have yet to confirm exactly where or how he obtained these uniform pieces. This is an important aspect of our investigation, and this will take some time. We do know that surplus police uniforms can be available to the public through a variety of means, which include things like surplus stores, auctions, and online. Collecting and owning police paraphernalia is perfectly legal in Nova Scotia and in Canada, but it is illegal to impersonate an officer, and the line between collection and impersonation can be a thin one. So where and how did Wartman get authentic uniforms? It seems like something that shouldn't be easy to do. Police say in court documents that they were told one of Wartman's two retired Mountie uncles, although we don't know which one, gave him a ceremonial RCMP uniform. The famous Red Surge, a scarlet British-style military pattern tunic with a high-neck collar and blue breeches with yellow stripes. It's finished off with brown leather riding boots and a wide-brimmed brown felt hat. But that uniform didn't fit him. And to be clear, it was not the one he was wearing during the shootings. That was a general duty uniform, and it looks completely different. A light blue button-up shirt with RCMP patches on the shoulders, a pair of navy blue pants with a yellow stripe down the side, and a yellow reflective vest. RCMP have said no member or former member of the force helped Wartman get those items. But the RCMP have not said where they came from. Superintendent Campbell did say you can get them through a variety of means. That's one of the things we want to explore in this episode. How easy is it to get a real police uniform in this country? My producer Alex Kress has been investigating that part of this story, and she's going to walk us through what she learned. Hey, Alex. Hey, Sarah. So it turns out it is easy to get your own police uniform because collecting police memorabilia is actually pretty common. When I started digging into this, I talked to a former collector in Alberta named William Roy. He's given me a lot of insight into what kind of items are on the market. He says it's not just RCMP items, but you can find pieces for sale from several municipal police forces from right across the country. 
But what Williams says is concerning is that some of the things being traded or sold are current uniforms, meaning people like Gabriel Wartman can acquire those and be able to pass as a legitimate officer. I've seen an accident waiting to happen, dumping brand new patrol uniforms on Facebook. That's a bad idea. Um, They're not collective in value. They're not vintage. Um, They really don't have a place there. It's brand new gear. So when people start creating a market for uniforms, it is kind of concerning because what are you going to do with it? You can't display it. hangs in your closet. So what's the purpose of having a brand new patrol uniform laying around your house? Uh, civilian cannot go to a police station and say, can I get a police uniform? You know, they don't hand them out to the public. Okay, so if you can't buy these uniforms from an actual police force and William says they don't have collectible value, then who's selling them? Where do you get them? Well, William said sometimes it's police officers themselves. So that's how these active duty uniforms end up on the market. And to be clear, a lot of the sellers are more or less anonymous, so we don't know for sure who they are. But what we do know is that there are tons of individual sellers online in places like Facebook groups or on Kijiji, And eBay is another huge one. If you type Canada Police, Canada Corrections, RCMP, it's just full to the brim with results. So there's a pretty major market for this stuff online just because of how much cash you can make as a seller. So just to give you an idea, Sarah, $250 Canadian for a current issue RCMP yellow patrol jacket. If you want a complete current issue uniform, so with the wide-brimmed hat, shirt, pants, holster, and a bulletproof vest, you're looking at around $7,800. And sometimes you'll even see current items like a badge I just saw in Kijiji that William told me is new, but the ad itself says rare antique. So sometimes sellers are trying to avoid drawing attention to the fact that these items are actually new. William says a lot of officers disagree over whether or not these items should be available. See, I've been fighting with uh, RCMP members because other RCMP members don't agree that you should be grabbing your kit to sell online. Um, you had infighting because some things are rare and if somebody else gets it prior, you know, there's a lot of jealousy and fighting. So according to William, there are a lot of factors that make the collecting experience a little hostile sometimes, but especially where you have this sort of convergence of people who are collecting for hobby or historical reasons and then people who are looking for more current pieces. Okay, so Alex, for the people who are collecting for hobby or historical reasons, what kind of police memorabilia are they collecting? Well, people collect vintage items like uniforms, patches, badges, hats, stuff like that. Some of the collectors are former police officers themselves, or maybe they have family connections to a police force. You can get this kind of vintage stuff like Superintendent Campbell said at surplus stores. There are so many of these Facebook groups where this kind of stuff is bought, sold, and traded. I guess a question that comes up for me is, why do people like William collect police gear in the first place? Yeah, I mean, it does seem a little odd if, if you're not part of that world. Um, but William told me it's actually a very lucrative business. Obviously, as we've talked about so far, I mean, you can really make a lot of money with this stuff. But also a big part of it is the nostalgia factor. And that's how William got into it. More than 10 years ago, he wanted to create a police museum. And he started buying things like vintage RCMP uniforms He found some that dated way back to the 1930s, and he was hoping to display over 200 of them. So in tracking those down, he had amassed quite a lot of police memorabilia just in general. But where the collecting starts to get a little dicey is when people are looking for newer or current pieces, those active duty uniforms that police are wearing right now. So again, you can even get 
bulletproof vest, which I found a little shocking. Um, so this is where the line between collecting and impersonating gets blurred. What Wartman had was genuine and looked exactly like what officers wear today. William raised a great point when we were talking. He said police usually issue a public safety alert when current uniforms and equipment are stolen from a police vehicle. So how are these brand new patrol uniforms ending up in the hands of the public? A lot of reproduced items also end up on the market, like embroidered patches. He says that's like having a license to print money. Well, it sounds like he feels really strongly that these things shouldn't be bought and sold. Has he ever done anything to try to sound the alarm on this? Yes, actually. As he started to see more and more current uniforms online, he actually wrote a letter to Brenda Lucky, the commissioner of the RCMP. When did that happen? Was that after the shooting rampage in Nova Scotia? Actually, no, this was back in May 2019, so just under a year before the shootings in Nova Scotia. I'll read you just a part of what he wrote here. So, quote, RCMP uniforms are in high demand and there is no thought to who purchases, but it's the large dollar amount the items bring. Most members usually get this stuff for little cost from work. With the growing number of police impersonator crimes, I think the sale of current RCMP patrol uniforms should be prohibited, end quote. In the letter, he goes on to say he wants to see these groups regulated with a vetting process that ensures group members are registered with police departments. Hmm. And did he get any response? Not from Lucky directly, but he did hear back from the RCMP, although William said the response he got left a lot to be desired. The note back to him from the beginning of June 2019, so the month after he sent his letter, reads in part, Quote, the RCMP and other municipal police forces may have internal policies surrounding the disposal of uniform and other police items by its employees. However, unless it is stolen property or it is used to personate a police officer, it is not illegal to possess, purchase, trade, or sell those particular items under the Criminal Code of Canada. When the shootings happened and William found out that Wartman was wearing a newer RCMP uniform, his stomach dropped. Oh, I was horrified. You know, and I can't believe um, this uh, gunman here, who's been a longtime memorabilia collector as well, that no Canadian collector on top of all this has actually come forward to say they've dealt with him. Um, he's obviously dealt with collectors at some point through his collecting uh, years. And uh, this is exactly what, you know, I was concerned about, and maybe not to the extent of, of what he's done, but it's no different than somebody donning one of these uniforms and doing a home invasion or robbing somebody or pulling somebody over on the on the highway. Um, it's a public safety issue. It really is. I'm curious, Alex, did William say if he ever saw Wartman in any of those collectors groups on Facebook? He says he didn't, but he pointed out that Wartman could have easily used a fake account without anyone ever being the wiser. So even if people were asked now if they remembered dealing with him or seeing his name, they might not have known. William also said after the shootings that a lot of the online collector groups went quiet or they kept operating underground. He thinks that's a trend that will continue, which will make it even harder to track. William used to be an administrator in one of those Facebook groups, which allowed him to manage things like settings, posts, and members and their comments, and also to accept or deny membership requests. But he said even when he was an admin, it was tough to keep track of everyone because there could be a group with two to 5,000 members and just no way of knowing if their profiles were real or fake. 
You said some of the groups have gone quiet, but has anything else changed in the police memorabilia collecting world since the shootings? Well, some of these groups are now asking for proof that members are or were police officers. William said that's quite a new development because in the past the training was kind of merit-based. So if you were trading, say, a patch for a patch and they both arrived at their destination without a problem, then there was less of a need for scrutiny. But since April, he says some groups are requiring that members be active or retired law enforcement members. Do these groups keep a record of their buyers? Well, William said that's not really how it works, but he did say he heard there was a bit of a housekeeping blitz that happened in the days following the tragedy. From what I was told, they were deleting their history as fast as possible after the Nova Scotia incident. I don't think any collector across this country is going to want to own up to trading, buying, or selling Wardman his uniforms, you know. And from my understanding, he's got RCMP stuff, plus he had municipal police forces as well in his possession. So he's probably dealt with several collectors throughout his years of collecting. In a way, it seems like William's been a bit of a whistleblower with all of this. What's it been like for him since this happened? Uh, it sounds like not not great. It hasn't been a great time. He told me it hasn't been easy speaking out. He says he's been harassed by several members of these groups and that they're very angry. William says he's in contact with police about that. Um, and he also said collecting as a hobby hasn't really been a mainstream news topic, but it's a huge market, like we've been saying. And he says it's common, you know, to get $250 Canadian for a jacket or $300 for a newer bulletproof vest. You can get eight to $1,200 for a complete red surge uniform on Facebook. I just saw an eBay ad for a pair of 1958 parade boots for 500 bucks just for the boots. So people who make a livelihood off of this trade do have a lot to lose if their business is interrupted. But so why, if it was flagged as an issue to the RCMP before this happened, was there nothing done to address it? William said he's very frustrated by that. Jeff Pierce. You know, there's got to be some accountability here in the future. So they really need to start cleaning up their act. So we know that Wortman had genuine police uniforms that he could have easily gotten online somewhere, but we still don't actually know where he got them exactly. All the RCMP have told us is that he didn't get help from any current or former police officers. Well, the gunman has two uncles who are retired Mounties, as we've said. We know police interviewed one of them, although we don't know which one, who police say gave him a red surge uniform. Police say he told them that Gabriel Wartman stayed at his house for about a week in 2011 or 2012 before he retired and he would have had access to his police uniforms hanging in the closet at that time. So it's possible Wartman's uniforms could have been stolen, although we haven't been able to speak to either of his uncles to ask if anything ever went missing. So where he got those uniforms is another question that the RCMP are just not answering at this point. Right. The RCMP aren't answering any questions about this case at this point. Have they said anything about their own policies in the past or about what they expect of their officers when it comes to their uniforms? Yeah, well, two weeks after the shootings, our colleague Alicia Drost did a story on the growing calls for more regulation of collecting this police paraphernalia and asked the RCMP for an interview. They did decline, but told her in a statement, quote, the RCMP policy on the management and disposal of uniform and equipment, so that's kit and clothing, requires that Uniform clothing items that are no longer serviceable or required by a member be condemned, destroyed, or altered so that they cannot be identified or reworn as an article of the RCMP uniform. So, obviously, that's not always happening. 
No, clearly not. And Alicia also spoke to a criminologist who basically said you can't prevent people from sewing clothes or from owning certain cars. So, you know, therefore, it's almost impossible to stop them from making those things into police gear. And that's exactly the problem. When it comes to the cars, buying a decommissioned police car is really easy. The RCMP regularly strips down and auctions off surplus vehicles. And to be clear, they're not always old clunkers. A quick scan of the government surplus website shows that most are less than 10 years old. Some look like they've been in an accident. Others are in good shape. Here's what police said in late April about how Wartman got his four Ford Taurus vehicles. Investigators have determined that all four police cars were former police models, and the gunman had acquired them through auctions within the past few years. With regard to the replicated police vehicle that he used on April 18th and 19th, we believe that he obtained that vehicle in the fall of 2019. And it was at that time that he outfitted it with the light bar and the decals. We know it wasn't just a light bar and decals that made the car into what police have called a very real lookalike. Wartman spent many months meticulously planning, buying all kinds of things to ensure that vehicle was as close to a real police car as it could be. Since the spring, a group of media outlets, including Global News, have been in court fighting to unseal the information police have about this case. When the shootings happened, the RCMP sought search warrants for the gunman's properties, electronic devices, and banking records. They compiled witness statements and evidence into documents called Information to Obtain a Search Warrant. Over the last several months, heavily redacted copies of some of those documents have slowly been released. They shed a lot of light onto the making of the mock police cruiser. Wartman's web browser history, dating back more than a year before the shootings, is filled with searches for police clothing, uniforms, cars and car parts, decals, articles like 11 things you didn't know about cop cars and top 20 non-restricted black rifles in Canada. He was searching for things on eBay, Amazon, Kijiji. Police asked PayPal for his account information, and they have records of what he bought from the federal government too. So here's a summary of Wartman's shopping habits. It starts on March 21st, 2019. He bought a 2013 Ford Taurus car from a government surplus auction. The next day, his PayPal account shows a purchase of a center console for a 2013 police car, the kind with a laptop mount. On March 26th, he bought a push bumper. This is that black bar that attaches to the front bumper of a car. It can reduce the damage if you're in a crash. A lot of police agencies use them, but most RCMP vehicles in Nova Scotia actually don't have them. In April, he bought partitions, window bars, and door panel covers that prevent anyone sitting in the back seat from opening the doors from the inside, leaving them trapped in the vehicle. He also got a sticker that said police interceptor, just like the logo on the back of a real police car. In May and June, he added an LED light bar, a two-way radio, siren controllers, reflective safety tape, a siren speaker, a speed radar, a dash cam, and a wireless mic. Just a month later in July, he successfully bid on two more former RCMP cars, a 2013 model and the 2017 the one he'd come to call his real police car. 
In September, he bought Thin Blue Line stickers and his fourth vehicle, another 2013 Ford Taurus. He also bought more car parts, another center console, more siren speakers, and a car-mounted gun rack and lock. That month, Wartman sent an email that said he, quote, got the cage in and the windows moved to the real cop car, end quote. He spent more than $18,000 on the vehicles alone, but the court documents actually only have prices for three of them. And the 2017 Ford Taurus was more than $10,900, by far the most expensive. Wartman spent another $11,500 at automotive parts stores and the Provincial Registry of Motor Vehicles, and he spent about $4,800 on all those police car parts through PayPal purchases. The court documents show that in total, he spent more than $33,000. If you can order this type of material online, you know, it means other people can. And, uh, you know, all of that should be prohibited by law. You should not be allowed. That's Daryl Davies, a criminology professor at Carleton University in Ottawa. He said it was clear that what Wartman was doing goes well beyond just collecting. There should be absolutely no way that those types of items can be purchased by an individual, you know, through eBay or through any of these online vendors. I mean, it's just not in keeping with common sense. And you're not going to be a collector if you're doing that, you know. When you collect, I mean, collectors collect things because, you know, their value, their historical aspect and, uh, and, and, and their interest in the history of policing and so on. And I totally understand that. Daryl thinks that people, and more importantly, the police, should be on the lookout for this kind of behavior because he said it's not normal. And even though it's not illegal, he said police have ways of checking in on someone if they get a report that they're building a real-looking police car. And people knew that's what Wartman was doing. Court documents show that police heard that from witnesses after the shootings— One of them, a friend of Aaron Tuck's, said that Aaron told him you couldn't tell the difference between the gunman's RCMP car and a real one by August of 2019. A sentiment echoed by Superintendent Darren Campbell at a press conference after the shootings. Witnesses have since come forward since the the critical incident and the horrific events that unfolded. And they've indicated to the police and provided information that they had seen the suspect with the vehicles. They had seen the suspect with the marked police vehicle uh, well before this. And that they had seen the suspect with several different types of police agency uniforms. One witness told police they thought the mock cruiser was a way to honor fallen officers. Another thought it was for a movie he was making. I spoke with a man who said he saw that car at Wartman's warehouse while doing some work on his property. This man said he was concerned and told Wartman he couldn't drive that car around. The RCMP insist no one told them about the car. But it seems PayPal saw his behavior as potentially dangerous. They created a suspicious transaction report, saying Wartman's account bought things that are typically meant for police use only. Purchases, quote, utilized in the facilitation of domestic terrorist activities, end quote. That report was sent to the Financial Transactions and Reports Analysis Center of Canada, better known as FinTrack, the federal government's anti-money laundering watchdog. I'm sorry, but that is, that's not just a small red flag. That's a huge red flag. 
and FinTrack should have been reporting that to the RCMP, and the RCMP should have been taking action to investigate it. That's just common sense. But we don't know if that happened. It's actually not clear in the documents when PayPal sent that report to FinTrack, if it was before the shootings or after. I asked PayPal's media relations team, and I haven't gotten an answer. The documents say FinTrack created reports for the RCMP on April 22nd and April 30th, 2020, after the shootings. But I don't know if they had this information or if they gave it to police before the shootings also. FinTrack said it's not allowed to talk about what it reports to law enforcement, so it won't answer my questions. And as I've told you before, the RCMP will not answer our questions about this case. Remember that police have said Wortman's mock cruiser looked identical to one of their cars from the outside. And that, too, was something he worked on. On June 10, 2019, Wortman tried to buy RCMP logos from a Florida-based company called American Vinyl. He said in an email that he was looking for a complete decal set for an RCMP Ford Taurus sedan. I don't know why he chose this company, but when I searched for RCMP logos, one of the Amazon listings I found was for a sticker sold by American Vinyl. And someone had asked the seller if they could produce a large RCMP decal the size on the car doors. In February of 2019, American Vinyl replied with, yes, we can. We can actually customize the text, size, or color of any of our designs, or create a new sticker based on an image you send. But court documents show the company replied to Wortman's request to say they were trying to get away from custom orders. They declined. So he leveraged another connection. A man who lived in Portapique and was a drinking buddy with a criminal history connected to a notorious gang, Peter Allen Griffin. Parole documents say Peter had a happy upbringing on the East Coast, but after moving to another province in his 30s, he started using cocaine heavily, and then he started selling it. He was arrested in December of 2014 as part of an investigation into the La Familia gang in Edmonton, which police said at the time had connections to Mexican drug cartels and MS-13. He served two years, nine months, and eight days before being released, deemed a low risk to reoffend. One of the conditions of Peter's release was to avoid all contact with anyone he knew or suspected of being involved in any criminal activity. He'd been living close to family in quiet Portapique, working at a sign printing business. He also did odd jobs for Gabriel Wortman around his properties, including some decal work on his truck. And at some point in June or July of 2019, court documents say he did another job, one that would eventually cost him his freedom. According to court documents, nine days after the shootings, police say Peter told them he had asked his boss if he could print off some police decals for Wartman, and he was told no. End of story. The documents say he told police as far as he knew, Wartman made the decals on the car himself. But then on May 4th, police say he spoke to them again and set the record straight. Court documents allege that Peter said he did print off RCMP-related images at work for Wartman. He researched those images on a work computer, and he printed off a combination of numbers and letters. 28B11, according to the court documents. That identifier was on the side of Wartman's mock RCMP cruiser. After that conversation, Peter's full parole was revoked, 
both because he was not transparent with his parole officer and with police, and for making the decals, which the parole board said represented a significant lack of judgment. RCMP say he has not been charged with any crime in this case. Making that mock cruiser was a months-long project for Wartman, one he seemed to take very seriously. And Daryl Davies isn't the only one who thinks that should have been a red flag. For, you know, uh, three decades of my life, three-plus decades, I've been devoted to preventing crimes, identifying criminals, uh, and, 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 and not letting these things happen. And I always feel that uh, there's a piece of me that wants to get out there and do my best to, uh, to at least stop the next one if I couldn't do the last one. James R. Fitzgerald is a retired FBI profiler with 20 years experience who now works as a consultant in Pennsylvania. As he said, he spent his career trying to understand people who commit terrible crimes and assessing their personalities and actions to try and determine if there are patterns to watch out for. Learning about a person after they've committed such terrible crimes is difficult. Police say they have interviewed hundreds of witnesses, spoken to Wortman's friends, family members, colleagues. Here are some of the things they said about him, according to the court documents. They said he was a collector, that he was paranoid, he had video cameras all over his properties, and he was especially worried about the COVID-19 pandemic. He was intelligent, controlling, abusive, a sociopath, a millionaire, a psychopath. The RCMP have also ordered what's called a psychological autopsy of the gunman. An expert will do their own interviews with people he knew to learn more about his personality and assess his state of mind at the time of the killings. And James has some thoughts about what that expert might find. There are indications that he could have been a psychopath. And that is someone who has a very low empathy, a high level of narcissism, uh, lies, is a manipulative, a con person. So again, I'm not doing an official psych evaluation of him here, but it wouldn't surprise me if, in fact, all the pieces could be put together doing his psychological autopsy, that it would come back that there are certainly indicators of him being a psychopath. But if not that, certainly some other um, um, indicators of mental health. And not everyone with mental health problems goes violent and kills people, but every once in a while when Jupiter aligns with Mars and every other factor possible, you'll you'll find guys like this uh, just uh, uh, putting their plan together and then carrying it out like he did back in April of this year. James told me that Wartman's obsession with police is actually not uncommon with mass killers and the type of violent crimes he's spent his career studying. They have a close if not secret association with either military or law enforcement. And they've never actually served in either, but they have this uh, sort of obsession with being part of them, uh, of those institutions. And we know the subject in Nova Scotia certainly had those interests with not only uniforms, but also a uh, somehow he got a, a used uh, police vehicle of some sort and it still looked like one, and that certainly helped him get around and perhaps be successful in a few more of his killings uh, over that uh, uh, elongated period. So it's not unusual for these individuals to have these types of interests. Wartman was known to dress up and role play as a cop. He had the whole uniform, and he had an arsenal of illegal weapons. We'll be getting into detail about how he got those guns in future episodes. 
For now, we know he took four of those guns with him on the night of April 18th. Two semi-automatic handguns that had been smuggled from the United States and two high-powered rifles. A Colt law enforcement carbine, similar to what police have. The other semi-automatic rifle was a Ruger Mini-14, the same kind of gun used in the Ecole Polytechnic Massacre in Montreal in 1989. Experts have told Global News that with the kind of weapons and ammunition Wartman had that weekend, he would have had more firepower than police. One thing that surprised me was that, according to the court documents, his former partner said he wasn't a police officer wannabe. She said he didn't like police officers, that he thought he was better than them. According to court documents filed by police, she said he called them pigs, and he used to say it would be easy to kill them. Former FBI profiler James Fitzgerald said this shooting spree had some of the hallmarks of what's called a pseudo-commando mass killing. Basically, these are attacks that often happen during the day. They've been planned in advance. The attacker has a powerful arsenal of weapons and no intent of surviving. One famous example of this is what happened in Norway in 2011. A man named Anders Breivik committed a horrible act of terror that killed 77 people. He set off a bomb in Oslo before disguising himself as a police officer and traveling to an island where a youth camp was underway. He shot and killed 69 people before his arrest. James said research shows these attackers are driven by strong feelings of anger and resentment. He sees himself as a pseudo-commando. And again, these are all personality types, if you will, that if, if they come together and, again, the nexus is created through stressors, through some uh, cathartic incident in their life, they could also, um, it, it could contribute to them becoming a violent person and carrying out these sort of actions. And this person assumes the, uh, the appearance and behavior and gestures uh, of, of the pseudo-commando type person for purposes of revenge and obliteration. And I definitely, I know there's some revenge in here with at least a few of the Per, uh, our, our subjects' victims, but, um, but certainly just the overall act of obliteration. Revenge and anger. We'll dig deeper into those in the coming episodes. But for the moment, I want to talk about that nexus James mentioned, the stressors in a person's life that could lead to something like this. Remember that witnesses told police the gunman was paranoid. They said he had cameras all around his properties in Dartmouth and Portapique, I've even seen cameras mounted on the trees on what's left of his cottage. Witnesses said he had hiding places in his homes, including places where he kept guns. His partner, Beth, also said he had become obsessed with the COVID-19 pandemic. It seems so long ago now, but those early days and weeks of the pandemic were really quite frantic. I felt like I couldn't turn off the 24-hour news channels even for a moment because things were changing so quickly. On March 11th, 2020, COVID-19 became a global pandemic. That same day, the first presumptive case of the virus was reported in New Brunswick. And the WHO has now officially declared COVID-19 a pandemic. Now Washington is taking new steps to curb the spread of the virus. That night, pro sports leagues started to shut down. And I remember for me, this is when it started to feel real. Like all of a sudden, this had gone from a faraway problem to being right on our doorstep. 
Utah Jazz All-Star Rudy Gobert has tested positive for the coronavirus, and as a result, the NBA announced on Wednesday night that the season has been suspended. Four days later, the first cases were announced in Nova Scotia. March 15th began with Nova Scotia being the only province in Canada without a confirmed case of COVID-19. That changed quickly by mid-afternoon. So we've had three cases in the last 24 hours reported from our lab. Public schools in Nova Scotia will now be closed for two weeks following March break. The next day, Wartman sent an email to Peter Griffin saying beers on Fridays were suspended. He and Beth will be social distancing until the virus gets sorted out. March 17th and 18th, the provincial government made back-to-back announcements of closures. Come Thursday, all restaurant establishments will only be able to serve takeout meals. And on top of that, bars and drinking establishments will be forced to close for the time being. Effective midnight tonight, all personal service establishments like hair salons, barbershops, gyms and fitness establishments, as well as tattoo and piercing parlors and nail salons, they must all shut down again. That is effective midnight tonight. On March 19th, Wartman closed his denture clinics in Halifax and Dartmouth, said he would be reassessing their opening on April 15th, three days before the rampage. He also sent an email that day saying the virus was huge and that he was not optimistic. He said, once the money runs out, people will become desperate and will need guns. Chillingly, he wrote, quote, thank God we are well armed, end quote. The next day, March 20th, he went to the bank and liquidated $400,000 in assets. He deposited the money into his business account. On March 22nd, And so today, effective immediately, I am declaring a provincial state of emergency. Stock markets had been falling for weeks, and March 23rd, the Canadian market hit a new low. On March 25th, Wartman went back to the bank. He redeemed another $75,000 worth of investments and put that into a business account. Then he met with a branch director and asked for the entire $475,000 in $100 bills. Three days later, Wartman emailed Peter Griffin, said that he was starting to feel better, but Beth now has it. It's not clear what it is, but this email makes it sound like he was sick at around this time. He also said he had low motivation. On March 30th, community spread of the virus was confirmed in Nova Scotia for the first time. Public health has now reached a point with one of our cases under investigation where there are no direct links to travel or to a known case. So we must conclude that at least with this one case is the result of community uh, transmission here in Nova Scotia. That day, Wartman got his money. He went to Brinks in Dartmouth and took his two parcels of $100 bills worth $475,000 and put them in one of his unmarked former police cars. He had Beth follow him home to Portapic in her own vehicle, watching in case he got stopped on the way. In early April, Wartman bought about five or $600 worth of gasoline. At the time, Canadians were being told to ensure we had enough food and medicine at home in case we needed to self-isolate for two weeks. It sounds like Wartman was taking that to the extreme. According to court documents, he wanted to buy large quantities of food, things like rice. In those same documents, police say Beth told them that it was like he was preparing for the end of the world. 
Former FBI profiler James R. Fitzgerald said the pandemic alone is not a reason for what happened next. Everyone that is going through this has some sort of a, uh, of a, of a negative reaction to, to in, in some regard, you know, whether it be financial, whether it be, you know, uh, medical, whether it be yourself or people around you. But again, that is not a reason that people go out on a, uh, on a shooting spree like we had back in April with this guy. It is just not. If only law enforcement or people around him could have somehow picked up on these trends and patterns and this sort of uh, de-evolving, this downward spiral where obviously he was, uh, he was losing it in, in various ways, perhaps there could have been intervention and perhaps this could have been avoided. But I'm not blaming anyone at this point. Uh, I don't have enough information for that. I don't think any one person so far of whom I am aware knew all of these factors and could put them all together at the same time. Throw in a COVID pandemic, you know, lockdown, shutdown, uh, clear other um, predictors of, uh, I should say, indicators of past violent behavior. And as we profilers always say, the best predictor of future behavior is past behavior. Daryl Davies, the criminologist we spoke with earlier in this episode, agrees that the pandemic and the lockdown were likely a factor. He was the first person I talked to in April to suggest that the shooting and the pandemic could be related. And when we spoke with another criminologist about this, he said the same thing. In fact, Michael Arnfield was more blunt. I said this at the outset of the lockdown. This is the most dangerous social experiment ever conducted. Michael is a professor at Western University in Ontario and a former police officer. He said we may never be able to prove a link between COVID-19 and Wartman's undoing. The court documents say that Wartman was talking about the coronavirus all the time in the days leading up to the shootings. Beth told police that he was paranoid that the prime minister, Justin Trudeau, would use the emergency to take money from people who had it a program where the government could take your money and give you some kind of shares in return. He took all that cash he withdrew and he buried it in a fireproof bag at his cottage. According to court documents, police say Beth told them that by mid-April, he was also talking a lot about death, saying that he knew he was going to die. And that weekend, she said it was like he snapped. Criminologist Michael Arnfield said it's impossible to separate what happened from the time in which it occurred. You force administrative segregation or solitary confinement onto an entire population. We know what the effect is on prison inmates. We don't know what the effect is going to be on, on people who, like Wartman, may have been, you know, had some dark fantasies and uh, disordered ideologies and, and ideas about things and people for a long time and now have had four months uh, for these ideas to fester and may have lost everything in the meantime. Uh, there's, there's people ticking right now, unfortunately. These experts are on the outside looking in, just like we are, trying to piece together the clues the gunman left behind by talking to people he knew and trying to understand something that seems impossible to understand. When you put it all together, the time and money that Wartman spent creating the fake police car, collecting uniforms, even going so far as to get a speed radar to ensure he could look just like a real police officer, that with the weapons, the ammunition, all of it seems to suggest that he was planning or preparing for something horrible. And yet RCMP have said they don't have evidence that what happened on April 18th and 19th was pre-planned. 
I asked James R. Fitzgerald about that. He said he doesn't want to disagree with the local investigators, but he said there are different levels of pre-planning. Over the years, do they also just happen to have, and we'll go back to this case, you know, a police uniform? Do they happen to also have a police-looking car? Do they also happen to have weaponry uh, and, and ammunition? And do they know their way around a certain environment, a certain area? So I think the definition of uh, pre-planned um, you know, has to be further uh, defined here, so to speak, and, and what it means. So it, it, maybe it was months in, in preparation, maybe it was years, maybe it was days, maybe just a few hours. And in the aftermath, a lot of people have called for change. People like former avid collector William Roy and criminologist Daryl Davies. They said that it should be harder, if not illegal, for the average person to collect items that make impersonating a police officer possible, even easy. In Canada, it's against the law to falsely represent yourself as a police officer or to use a badge, uniform, or equipment in a way that would make people believe you are a police officer. In Australia, it's also illegal to own any firearms, ammunition, clothing, or equipment that were supplied to a member or special member of a police force. The state of New South Wales goes even further. It's illegal there for anyone who is not a police officer or a special constable to possess or wear a police uniform, to manufacture or sell police insignia, and to drive or possess a vehicle with police insignia on it. There are exceptions if you've been granted a license by the commissioner of police. When the shootings happened, the Canadian Police Association said that it's extremely worrying how easy it is to impersonate a police officer in this country and that governments should make it harder. Because the bottom line is, whether he planned it for months or days or years, Wortman had everything he needed to carry out this attack right at his fingertips on April 18th official emblems on the car, uniforms that empowered him with authority and gave him a false license to carry the weapons and the ammunition he used to kill people. Four months after the rampage in August, the opposition party in Nova Scotia called for more regulation on the sale of former police vehicles in this province. The federal government has brought in tougher gun control laws since the shootings, those new laws actually ban the kind of semi-automatic rifles Wortman had with him that weekend. Police say that three of Wortman's weapons were smuggled from the United States, and smuggling was already illegal. So experts say this law likely wouldn't have changed what happened. But nothing has been done to regulate the sale of police paraphernalia. And I think it's tough to expect neighbors to report one another for strange behavior that's not actually illegal. But these are just some of the red flags we've uncovered. And as you'll learn, one of his neighbors did report the gunman's illegal activity. I thought to myself, nobody listened to me. Everybody protected him. And there were people there that knew what he was like, and nothing was done. In our investigation, we've learned that Wartman's past included violence toward loved ones, strangers, neighbors. What kind of warnings did police have about him? That's next time on 13 Hours.
On December 4, 2020, the RCMP released its first update in this case in six months. They announced that three people have been charged with helping Wartman get some of the ammunition he used in the killing spree. One of those people is his common-law partner. Throughout this series, you have known her as Beth. That's a pseudonym we gave her to protect her identity. Because as we told you in episode one, police sources say Wartman violently assaulted her at the beginning of his rampage on April 18th. It's the policy of Global News to avoid naming victims of domestic or sexual assault. And that's what we did in this case. However, in light of these new charges, Global News has now updated that decision based on the overriding public interest in this case. So from here on out, you will hear her full name in this story. It's Lisa Banfield. Lisa Banfield, James Banfield, and Brian Brewster have been charged under Section 101 of the Criminal Code of Canada for unlawfully transferring ammunition, specifically 223 caliber Remington cartridges and 40 caliber Smith & Wesson cartridges, to Wartman. Police say this happened between March 17th and April 18th, 2020, the day the killing spree began. Wartman did not have a firearms acquisition certificate and he was not licensed to own any of the guns or ammunition he used, according to the RCMP. According to an obituary, Lisa has a brother named James Banfield and a brother-in-law named Brian Brewster. It's important to note that these charges have not been proven in court and all three are considered innocent until proven guilty. The RCMP also say all three have cooperated with their investigation and that none of them had any knowledge of what Wartman was going to do on April 18th and 19th. Choosing to name Lisa was a difficult decision. It involved a lot of debate. One of the things we've always set out to do with this series is to dig deep into the complex and sensitive issues raised in this story. And intimate partner violence is one of those issues. As you will learn in the next episode, April 18th was not the first time Lisa was subjected to violence by her partner, according to Wartman's uncle. That context is important to understand as we go forward. And hey, this is an ongoing investigation. We have been poring over hundreds of pages of court documents, and as we do interviews and research, things are shifting. We want to make sure that our telling of this story is as accurate and up-to-date as possible. So watch for that next episode in two weeks. 13 Hours Inside the Nova Scotia Massacre is written and produced by me, Sarah Ritchie, and Alex Cress. Our story producer is Dila Velasquez. Sound design and audio production by Rob Johnston. Editing assistance from Neil Benedict. Additional reporting for this episode by Global News investigative reporters Andrew Russell and Brian Hill. Special thanks to Don Cuthbertson, the National Director of Content and Editorial Standards for Global News, and to Beatrice Politi, Network Managing Editor. I'd love to have you tell a friend about this podcast, and you can help me share these important stories by rating and reviewing 13 Hours on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. We have much more on our website, including articles, maps, and photos, all of that written and curated by Brian Hill, Alex Cress, and me. Just head to globalnews.ca slash 13 hours. You can also find us on Instagram at 13 hours podcast. 
If you have a question about this episode or series, please get in touch on social media or by email at 13hours at curiouscast.ca. I'd love to hear from you. Our contact information is in the show notes too. Thanks again for listening. Please join me next time.